0: So can we just unpack that idea of that movement from student engagement to student empowerment?
1: What a real strong commitment doubling down on our part on
2: working with students as trusted partners.
3: Empowering students through that assessment process.
2: We're
4: not giving up the power because we never really had that power to begin with. And so
2: the mentality has shifted in the students, like it was just like not even a question.
0: Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to uh, our first Studiosity Symposium for 2022. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge that I'm hosting this online conversation from the lands of the Camaragal people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which you all work today, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people participating in this meeting, and First Nations people across other parts of the world. I my respects my respects to elders past, present, and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of New South Wales and elsewhere in Australia and New Zealand. I note that there are also one or two Canadians, so welcome. Today's our first symposium for 2022. Its focus is on student engagement and empowerment. We plan to deliver more during the year, but uh, we'll keep you informed. The symposium and webinars provide the higher education community with the opportunity to engage in conversations and trigger ideas about challenges and issues facing us all in higher education, but in particular, how we can support students to be successful. So how the session is organised, the five minute introduction, then I'll ask each member of the panel questions that relate to their expertise and experience. And then there'll be questions taken from the audience. I'll attempt to bring all of these together at the end So if I may start with our student representative, JB, thank you for for participating today from your busy schedule. So if you can introduce yourself, I won't put any words in your mouth.
2: Thank you, Judith. Um, So my name is Jean-Baptiste, but JB is fine. Um, As you can hear from the accent on the name, I may or may not be French, but we'll never know. (laughs) Um, I, um, I'm a medical student out of Western Sydney University, um, and amongst other things, I am also chair, the chair of the National Rural Health Student Network, and I've been a past uh, facilitator and mentor for the last couple of years, so very excited to be here to share on this topic.
0: Mm. Jenny.
3: Thanks, Judith. So I'm a Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Vice-President Academic at the University of Adelaide, and in that role, I oversee all our degree and diploma programs, our short courses, micro-credentials, all our teaching-learning partnerships, then a whole lot of other things like university libraries, student accommodation. But teaching enhancement, innovation, and uh, staff development and excellence is one major part of it. And continuing exec ed for all our, our undergrad, postgrad students and our alumni. Um, I oversee all aspects of the student experience and the student journey and student support and student success generally. So everything from admissions and scholarships and internships to exams and graduations and then all the academic, pastoral, disability and social support. So it's a busy and really great role.
0: Thank you.
1: Theo? Uh, yes, good morning everyone. I'm a bit like Jenny. So my my portfolio is uh, Deputy Vice Chancellor, Academic and Student Life, at the University of Wollongong. So like Jenny, I'm doing the entire uh, student life cycle falls under my um, portfolio. I, I guess, uh, you know, it's, it's really great to be part of this discussion. Um, so our, our Vice Chancellor, Professor Trish Davidson, uh, when she joined, she brought a real strong commitment doubling down on our part on working with students as trusted partners And in December signed a partnership agreement between the university executive and the student advisory council as part of our commitment to empowering students. Uh, So I think that's why I'm really interested to join this discussion because this is squarely where we're at in terms of what we want to do this coming year and in the years ahead.
0: Thank you Theo and last but not least my former colleague and co-author Mitch Purcell.
4: <laughs> Thank you, Judith. So I'm Deputy Vice Chancellor Education at the University of Tasmania, joining you from Sunny Little Witter, um, the land of the Palawa people, one of the oldest continuing cultures in the world. Um, my remit is curriculum, pedagogy, everything to do with supporting student learning. Um, in my own teaching, I've been devoted to a community of inquiry model for a very long time, so a pedagogical approach that's very much built on a sense of cooperation and trust with students, um, allowing them to drive their own learning through a common purpose. Really looking forward to the conversation today.
0: Thank you very much. So let's let's start the question. And in fact, the question that I'm going to pose came from um, a colleague at uh, Monash University who is a senior lecturer, and it's reframed one that we, we talked about earlier uh, as a group. So the question is student belonging and p- empowerment. Do you think universities have learned things in 2020 and 2021 worth keeping post-COVID? So who'd like to start off with that, that, that question?
3: I can kick in just very briefly. I think one of the things that um, we did at Adelaide that worked really well was we actually collaborated with the student union, the Adelaide University Union, um, coming up with support for students. And these were support packages, often really practical emergency assistance for students, especially especially in 2020, I have to say. But then we collaborated with them around what could we do to to support students online and face-to-face um, that included funding them a little bit extra to do stuff, but also just really listening to those students and, and those student leaders uh, and what they thought would benefit students. So it wasn't so much in the classroom, if you like, but it was that really important b- part of it around the academic experience. Mm.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, I, I think I, what I, I would add is that, uh, you know, we were... We are thrust um, in our universe, like many others, into uncertainty in 2020. It was a whole new world we found ourselves in because we had to pivot in two weeks flat to to online, like everyone else, really. Um, and, and I think for us, that meant that we, uh, we were incredibly anxious to understand the student perspective, how they were experiencing what was happening. Uh, so we opened up multiple channels, you know, a, a lot of pulse surveying of students they, uh, towards the end of survey fatigue, lots of focus group work lots of consultations and we just haven't really stopped so this it really amplified the importance of consulting mm-hmm. with the students understanding their perspectives so I think it has caused a cultural shift in us understanding that it's vitally important that we both understand the student perspectives but we involve them more in, in how we continue to collectively collectively respond to the challenges we face.
0: JB, do you want to make a comment here or will you wait wait a bit?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, I really like the term of digital equity. I think um, that's what 2020 is really brought in. Um, I think it's good to see technology as, you know, our friend rather than, you know, something that's used as a cop-out or to kind of get away from requirements. Um, And I think as a medical student, a lot of us, don't step foot on campus for the last two or three years of our degree, because we're just in the hospital Um, and my university particularly has many campuses. So um, I would have never got involved if it wasn't for COVID into a lot of different things with the university, whether it's online events or, um, you know, signing up for um, academic boards or representative kind of things, because I just wouldn't have at that time. I'd spend a lot more time traveling. A lot of things would have been in person and it would have been weird to zoom into a meeting. Well, now it's just so normal um, that it's, it's really enabled some, like those of us that are outside that kind of like campus based learning to really kind of be part of the learning, which is great. And Mitch. So
4: for us, Judith, we worked very closely with the unions, but um, just listening to the student voice. So look, each of us um, faced different challenges during the pandemic that's institutions, disciplines, and individuals. And really, the only effective way of responding to those challenges or meeting those challenges is, is to empower individuals. And you can't do that unless you start by listening. So we surveyed students, we spoke to students, we we had a very close relationship with our student union. And that relationship continues to develop and mature. And we're in a really good place because of that um, relationship.
0: So can we just unpack that idea of that movement from student engagement to student empowerment? And what, what does that actually look like in practice? And I'll, I'll, given that you, you made that distinction, Mitch, yeah. I'm going
4: to throw it, throw it to you first. So engagement can often be seen as something that we do to students. So we engage them with our content, with our learning, with our activities, whereas empowerment for me is more around allowing, allowing students to drive their own learning in ways that make sense to them. Um, and for that to happen, you need to begin from a, you know, a student-centric position, understanding where um, where they're coming from, what makes sense to them and what they want to learn. And that kind of co-development of curriculum, co-development of the pedagogy, I think, is particularly important in you know, stressful times like a pandemic.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, do Jenny or Theo want to add, add to that in terms of their, their thoughts around that shift from engagement to empowerment and what it looks like in your institutions?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I, I agree, Mitch, that that's really the direction of traffic. There are obviously tension points that are, are, are really obvious to everyone. Um, you know, uh, the shape of curricula are driven by num- multiple factors. There's heavy legacy drag on curricula. That's, we all know that, right? Uh, but also there's lots of other positive factors that drive curriculum. There's obviously accreditation considerations. Uh, there's increasingly, you know, in the policy settings, the importance of industry and business and their involvement in assisting us to produce job job ready and career ready graduates. So all these factors come into play. Uh, it's great that we are focusing more on student choice and empowerment, mm-hmm. uh, but obviously, you know, you can't have a, it, it, it wouldn't necessarily be a good thing and it's not actually possible to enable students to have total choice. And so it's how do we, how do we work with students to co-design curricula, but being present obviously to all of the other factors that we have to um, bear in mind and also work with our staff, our academic staff, as, as subject matter experts. So it's that mix, which is really exciting and interesting, but not without challenges.
3: I, you know, I can comment briefly on it. Um, just by up what Mitch said, I think too, you have we have some, we can change our structures to go from engagement to empowerment. And I think um, one of the things we started to do before COVID was to put more students on course program school review panels so that there was a student undergrad and postgrad voice. I think that's really important. So we've been changing our, our formal structures uh, wherever we can to have that student voice present at different layers in the organisation, so not just at the very top on the university council or the senate. Um, so I think that's, that's probably the major way um, that we've tried to do it. And the other way is just changing some of the naming. So we're going through a restructure, many universities are going through restructures, but we've changed a role that was director, executive director student operations to executive director student experience. Um, And there is therefore a change in functions and emphasis um, that's indicated by that name change, but also substantively with what that role now encompasses.
0: So from from what you're saying, and then I'm going to get uh, JB just to react from the student's perspective in terms of, you know, is that his lived experience? But it seems as though that it does require a, a sort of a cultural shift in an institution But it also requires learning uh, on the part of students and academics to take on this role of empowerment and and giving up some of the power that they previously had. Am I correct in in that sort of observation?
4: I I think that's definitely correct, Judith. Um, And in fact, probably we're not giving up the power because we never really had that power to begin with. We're just recognizing that the power should have been more evenly distributed.
2: Yeah, good point. I mean,
4: Jay-
1: I think. sorry, sorry let Jean Baptiste
2: come in if he wants speak after it, so. no, 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 and I was gonna actually go on what Theo said, which is where you know the shift can't go all the way. You kind of got to find that middle, and and it, an interesting example is that when I did pass in my first year that was pre-COVID so it was in person you know there was maybe one online session and that kind of thing so when I signed up for pass thinking I was going to do it in person really excited and then COVID happened so my whole experience of pass has been online and now we're going back in person and now I'm mentoring the new facilitators and they came in and I was like oh you guys are going to be in person it's great and they were all like oh no, like, why would we do that? And so the mentality has shifted in the students. Like it was just like, not even a question. Why would we do something like it's comfortable? We do it at 7 p.m. when everyone's available at home, that kind of thing. And so that mentality shift, I guess, needs to be followed by the institution in a way. And it's it's hard because even me, I, I'm a student, I'm a fourth year and I already can see differences with the first years mm-hmm. because of how they went through high school and how are they going through you know, medicine. So it's very interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. So the next question, JB, is actually directed to you. And it's um, some students experience engagement negatively. Non-traditional students experience university culture as foreign or hostile, international students, Indigenous students, students with disabilities, students from minority religious groups, LGBTQT students, low-income, first-in-family. There's a whole list of them, and I I apologise if I leave any out. But what... um, What's your observation in terms of how well universities manage that diversity? And what advice would you give to our three Deputy Vice Chancellors in terms of how to manage diversity and and inclusion?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And there's so many answers to it. Um, I I think it's good to think that diversity is that, like, I don't know many people that don't tick one of those boxes. Um, and it's like in medicine, you know, where the standard male of 70 kilos, that's what we kind of base ourselves on. But that male just doesn't exist, like, everyone's different, everyone's got different things. Um, and so I think when you look at peer programs, it's great to create the opportunity, obviously the students can't engage without the opportunity, but then you got to think about everything around it, it's kind of a 360. You've got things like advertising it, right. So you know, finding the right way to kind of get to the students, especially the students that are, I guess, outside that that, you know, standard kind of high school believe, student that everyone just thinks of. Um, then you got to get the students feedback on the program, like before and after. Um, whether it's the peer or the students participating. Um, and I think that's something that kind of gets forgotten a lot of is the feedback from the university. Like, you know, we've been doing those things um, because a lot of times we kind of give feedback to university. Oh, we'd love to see that. Oh, we love that program. And then we don't hear what goes on after that. And so much happens in university. I've sat on academic boards, I've sat on different kinds of things and there's so many discussions and talk about us all the time, but we don't realize that. Or at least, you know, most students don't realize that. So I think that's something that's really good. Another thing I think is succession planning. So it's also kind of thinking that the peer We're all there because we're passionate. You know, we're not there for the money, we're not there for the CV, we're there because we really want to give back to our community. And so we really think of, you know, who would be good to kind of take over from me? Or who would be that? So giving that voice to the student to kind of help with that succession planning would actually help a lot. Um, And I think the last point is relatability. So if you look at an international office, a lot of people are former international students or you know, overseas people themselves. And I think that's just because it's just more relatable to that student. And that applies to like all the different kind of groups. So I think having the university that can represent its students with its staff is also a great way of doing it. If
1: I can add, I mean, I think these practical points that JP is making are, are absolutely right. I mean, I, we, we need to do more and better to communicate back to all of our stakeholders and most importantly, our students, what we are doing. And we're seeing that ourselves. So we're putting more efforts into comms. We had a big uh, campaign last year, which was, you know, you told us so. We are to feedback to students how we are responding to their concerns, but also calls ourselves to account, which is really important in terms of the um, the staff and what we're doing. But the other is the real practicalities of how do you empower students? Well, there's a lot of practical stuff. Mentoring is critically important. Secretariat support is important. Like, JB's absolutely right. Uh, succession planning and and and. You know, we're only just getting our head around this now, actually. So we have we have a, a staff student, we've called them Staff Student Partnership Innovation Hubs that work on distinct pieces of work. Just our, our university education committee just uh, last week looked at a really big piece of work around a handbook to have for student representation in academic governance. There's so many stuff in there. that I read that as a member of staff, and I was, I was thinking, actually, this handbook will help students, but most of all, members of staff have to read it. because lots of practical considerations around budding mentoring, supporting students so they have the confidence to go in, they have the understanding to go in and and give voice um, and represent the interests of of, of various uh, constituencies. So I think these practical concerns are really important actually.
3: Jenny? I was going to say I I just was thinking about the point that um, JB made earlier about digital equity and I think that is one of the pluses we've found with some of our quiet students, often our students from Asian countries Um, And again, having lived in Japan for a while myself, I'm very well aware of a very different model of, if you like, more master-apprentice kind of model that is certainly the school model and and most universities too. And I think the the chat function, (laughs) as our, our, um, our, our participants know today, is actually really handy and quiet students can become very vocal in chat rooms. Um, So I think that's one thing I'd like to keep as we go back to face to face, because it's very hard to get those um, more reticent students to speak up and to hear their views. And so if we can keep a way of having the quiet voices come in, that
0: would be terrific. Mm. Mitch, do you want to make a comment?
4: Yes, so at UTAS last year, we implemented um, representatives on each of the college committees um, and, in fact, beyond the college, at each of the discipline areas, so within the schools. And those um, representatives then spoke to their constituents and would write a report on our, in in this case, the response to the pandemic that would come to me. And I would make, you know, formal recommendations on um, how the university would change in response to that. So I think it comes back to Theo's point, of you really closing that loop. So we've heard what you said this is how we're going to change. Let's check back in later on to ensure that we are actually having the impact that you want.
0: Keeping with the, the theme of, of, of students um, and, and their experience, uh, they're not just undergraduate students. They're not just doing bachelor's degrees. There's also research students. So there's a question here from a, a research student. Um, with research students working remotely and not necessarily ever stepping on campus, how does one assure that they are connected? Oh, I'd love to pitch in here, Judith, because that's one of the issues I've been dealing with all
3: last year. Um, so I have a diverse group of HDR students, and they're spread all over the country. Um, and it has been one of the hardest, hardest things. I had one poor student who spent most of Melbourne, um, his, his candidature in Melbourne, um, in, in lockdown. Um, and I really felt for him. I mean, I think that social interaction that he was able to have with me as a supervisor once a week, um, I know how valuable he found it because when the borders reopened, he he got in a car and drove up from Melbourne to give me a, a bottle of something as a present and then drove back. Uh, so, so I think just to have that. And this is the the thing with universities. Our students are there to learn academic content, but they're also there to to mature in their thinking and mature as individuals. And what we're providing for them is a way for them to to think critically about their research topics or the topics in the classroom, but also critically about life. Um, Maybe that's my background as a humanist, but I, I actually feel very strongly that that aspect of university education is is in some ways the most critical aspect of education for them. So for our for our research students who are very much doing it as a lone journey, even at the best of times, um, I think COVID has been especially hard.
0: Look, there's another question here from uh, somebody from um, James Cook University, and it relates about inclusiveness and managing the diversity of student bodies. What strategies ensure that students who may not have the cultural capital, that is, the more as the experience to be able to manage university life are supported to engage in partnership activities. So how do students who might not, who might be first in first in family uh, learners, they might come from remote areas, they might be indigenous students, they could be any sort of uh, um, type of diverse student body, how do we how do we help them navigate and manage the sort of arcane structures and cultures of a university and and jb let me start with you because uh, i'd be interested to hear because you you've you've done a number of degrees in, in a number of universities
2: well yeah so i, I had a first go around the university and i can't say i was that successful there was a lot of different factors i was young um i was an international student i was just i just you know there was a lot of things to figure out so um my academic success was probably not on my number one focus but i think coming back around it's almost like a cheat code where i've kind of like figured out where i can go and where i can get help and who i can talk to and what i can get engaged with and i really i think working helped me in a way where i kind of realized um that you know, working full-time being at university is not that different. You kind of get engaged, talk to people, kind of share things around. Um, and the more engaged you are, the better your experience. So obviously not everyone can do that, but I think it, it'd be great for the universities to kind of like find ways to just kind of put in place those kind of stepping stones. And I think it's what, what something Theo mentioned earlier with mentoring and things like that, like not expecting the same engagement from the first year then from the third or fourth or fifth year, that would have had that kind of progression, but enabling it in a way. Um, I know it's hard for it to do with everyone, but I think that's really something that, that would kind of change, you know, one person's life and and kind of snowball from there. So, all right, DVCs. So, yeah,
0: uh, sorry.
2: Us
0: some interventions that might be possible.
4: So I think a really practical one, um, Judith, is one that JB's already spoken about, and that's past power. Um, so they have been really non-threatening um, environments in which students interact with their peers and can build a community, you can really begin to understand the hidden curriculum of a university. Universities from the outside and, in fact, internally, you know, are, are very hierarchical, uh, you know, very formal structures. It's very difficult for students um, from underrepresented groups to penetrate those. But if you can do that within a you know, an, a a positive, um, low risk setting, like a power pass class, um, that's as valuable as any of the content that you'll learn in those classes.
1: I I, I would agree with Mitch. I mean, I think, you know, there's partly it's around, uh, as you say, Judith, developing um, the kind of appropriate cultural capital in students so that Mm -hmm. they can really uh, participate, uh, you know, and be empowered to participate in university. Uh, governance, which is what we're talking about. Uh, and I agree, with Mitch, I mean, there's all these kind of peer peer to peer success, uh, various success programs that we all have. Uh, and that's one way that's, you know, students um, obviously give back to their own community, but then begin to develop a cultural capital that they feel more confident uh, to, to voice uh, them, have voice in the process. So I think that's really important in terms of a creation, a pool of students who then from which would then nominate themselves to go into governance structures and the other is just to put a lot of support around the governance structures themselves. So I'm, I'm sure we all do the same. We do quite a lot of training of students that come into governance roles, supporting them throughout it. So in addition to the mentoring, you've got quite formal training. And then lots of opportunities for students in governance roles to come together and share experience and for us to celebrate and recognize the contribution that they're making uh, to university life. So, so I think you know those kind of measures uh, are important. And we need to continue to do that. The one thing you can't do is suddenly is just pluck a student and dump them into commission and expect that they're going to then have voice and be able to fully participate. But I I, I, I reckon we're all basically in the same space in terms of what we're doing.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, well, I was going to say, uh, we. I'll give you a practical example. I think there's also the informal network that students have of communicating how the system works. And I think we underestimate that. A practical example is we did face-to-face sit-down exams for the first time in two years in November. And we found out that not only had examiners forgotten how to, uh, invigilators forgotten how to invigilate face-to-face. It was a bit mm. like the pilots getting back in the planes in the US and forgetting how to fly properly and do terrible landings. But but the students had didn't know where to go. They didn't know how you conduct yourself in a face-to-face sit-down mm. exam because it gets passed down from mm. year to year. And we had students who just hadn't had that experience. So um, one of the things we're funding this year is a welcome back festival that runs all year. Because we'll be welcoming back students all year and it's an induction program that goes through all of this stuff so the formal stuff but it's the informal stuff about how you get around um you know it starts off with we're handing the international students um free rats you know all sorts of (laughs) not the animals the tests (laughs) um but we're helping them out with how you get from the airport to the city then we're helping them out with accommodation then we're helping them out with extra english language support even if they're in third year because they haven't been here for two Mm. years but it's very similar for the domestic students. Our O-Week is not just the first years, it's welcoming back people who are in third year who haven't been on campus.
1: Yeah, if I could, I just, I know, Judith, you want to pop into another question, but I think this is a really interesting point. It's a good opportunity to share experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, we are have the exact same. We are having to, we're having to supercharge and lean in on our welcome activity for students. Uh, and and I dare say, like all our colleagues, also online as well, and it's in person. So it's interesting how this year, both we have domestic students who haven't been on campus for a couple of years, We've international students arriving less well prepared than in the past, and so we're having to we're having to put a lot more effort into supporting our students as they transition into 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 their courses.
0: There's a question here, and it's it's continuing with the theme on on in the, the online environment, the digital environment. So can I ask um, members of the panel to discuss the strategies of overcoming challenges of forming student partnerships in the onla- on, online learning environment? So, given that there's this virtual environment, nobody really sees each other. I mean, I met somebody the other day for the first time face to face, and they were much shorter than I thought they were. <laughs> so, how do, you, how do you how do you actually build this this partnership uh, in an online space, and then the transition to the face to face?
2: Well,
4: Judith, I don't. But really, the techniques in the online space probably aren't that much different to the face-to-face space. You do need to be more deliberate in your actions there. So the affordances of the online don't come as naturally to us. But I don't believe it's um, ultimately any more difficult if you pay particular attention to allowing students to make those connections and allowing the space to make those connections. So, um One of the affordances of the on-campus experience is, of course, outside of the curriculum, students just naturally interact and naturally bump into each other. That doesn't happen to any great extent online, so you need to ensure you do that deliberately and make the space for that to happen. Quite often, that can mean reducing the amount of content at the start of the course, for example, and allowing students to make um, social connections within the class before delving into the content. Um, really clear evidence that one of the main reasons fully online students um, drop out at high rates is that lack of social connection. And it's because we don't deliberately allow them to make it.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh, I was going to say, um, I think having those kind of icebreaker activities, a, a colleague of mine does it very, very well with Kahoot quizzes. And I think just having some of those informal things just to get students in a comfortable, relaxed zone um, so they can form that kind of connection online is, is really important. But also you, you can do small group breakout work online, even in very big classes. I think um, it it's the same as though as if you're doing it face to face. There are some students who won't be the ones who can be the spokesperson for the group. So I think having a range of different roles for students so that you have, again, the ones who are less articulate, um, less outspoken, but really happy to do something behind the scenes, be able to do that and contribute to the group really effectively.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because we've been looking at this too in terms of how you optimise the online uh, online meeting experience, be that if it's in a teaching context or some other context. So -hmm. we set up a a student-staff partnership innovation hub to look precisely at this. And a key issue you were trying to attack was the issue of the camera on off issue, you know, because staff have different views about should we should we require students to have the camera on? Or, and then, of course, there's a view around, you no, know, you have to obviously respect student choice around this. And, and, and the, the emerging view that's coming from the Student Staff Partnership Innovation Hub, it's really fascinating, but it's around understanding the various perspectives of staff and students and helping, helping staff and students understand these variety of perspectives. And so it's really about helping people v- understand where other people are coming from. And the two are two key principles that we're likely to be taking forward is is that these interactions should be guided by role diversity and self reflection. Mm-hmm. We all have different roles to play, uh, and we all come you know with different roles in mind. And we just reflect what mm-hmm. self reflect about what we're involved in. And this is with the way we see it is that it's part of helping students develop professional skills for professional contexts because we're going to be Working hybrid for the rest of our lives, a mix of online and in person. But we we all recognise and value the importance of diversity in our teams. We all understand that diversity is is the key strength a team can have. Mm-hmm. And so it's this role diversity and self reflection is critical to developing and valuing diversity in teams. So that's the kind of direction that we're taking take, taking taking at this.
0: International students are now, Jenny mentioned that uh, international students were coming back on campus and they're returning to other parts of uh, other parts of Australia. Um, What what special considerations do we need to uh, make for international students so that they often they come from a, a, a culture where a sense of empowerment is totally alien to their whole lived experience as a student? So how do we socialize students into this sense of empowerment how do we educate them to be uh, effective and competent in, independent learners, so that they get the most out of their experience and and they they fulfill they fulfill the aspirations that we have for our universities? And, and JB, do you want to? You've you've been an international student and you've you've had those challenges of having to learn another culture, uh, working in in a language was that was not your first language. So, give us some insights into what it was like for you and what it still is like for you.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think I think the first thing is that it takes time. So like that's not something that's going to magically happen. There's no easy solution to it. But I think there's a lot of factors that can be played. I think, and it's it's you know not applicable for every international student, but a lot of international students will live on campus or close to campus. So I think the focus has to be campus learning, as I was saying earlier. Medical students a bit different, um, but really you've got to integrate that living activity with the studying because they're really twenty four seven part of that university environment and not recognizing it or not kind of, you know, like there's things that are done where, you know, accommodations are done by private providers or things like that. And that's not a commentary on that, but I'm just saying it is really the university has to take into account that the student is there 24 seven. And I think bringing peer programs again is, is the only the main way to do it. You've got relatability, you've got international students that have achieved this or that have, you know, like understood this and they will share that and I think that's something that other people can't really share unless they've gone through it um so i think those things really yeah should be taken into consideration for that Mm
0: -hmm. uh any comments from
1: from say um i agree with jb It's, it's really interaction is really important and we know from feedback from international students that they really really value they're coming for that interaction with domestic students they're looking for that one of the challenges of course with COVID, is that we haven't really been able to provide that because it's through the on-campus experience that, that you really get those opportunities. Um, but just to say, with regards to ourselves and I, I dare say many other universities with our accommodation facilities, we intentionally mix it up. So we intentionally ensure there's diversity in, in in terms of the of who's going into which accommodations. Uh, and then we hold a whole bunch of events that bring people together. So, so accommodation, on-campus accommodation is a great opportunity for us to give those opportunities to international students. But of course, many international students wouldn't live on, on campus. But I think that's one of the virtues of having portfolios like myself and, and I heard Jeannie say likewise for her, in hers, where where we can look across the entire student life cycle and see how we can uh, optimise what we how we support students and we can really ensure they have the best possible experience.
3: And just on that point, Theo, and JB, your point about the accommodation. Um, so most of the students at our university live in accommodation that the university does not own. We do have some particularly on our, um, more remote campus at Roseworthy, but I actually meet monthly with the college and residential hall heads, and we've got a really great relationship because we've all got a common aim of making sure the students succeed. And these are, these are colleges that have students from across the universities in, in um, South Australia, but there's a common aim with making sure that we're all on the same page, that we're trying to deal with issues and problems as they come up together. And it's about that sense of cohort experience and belonging for the students, one of the things um, i found is very sad is actually having the international students is a two-way street. Our domestic students benefit from having international students, um, like they benefit from having an international staff. And for, for the first time ever in its history, one of our affiliated colleges will have no residential international students. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's very damaging for the student experience
0: for the domestic students. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, Jenny, I want to pose a question to you specifically, then the others can can come in. And um, in in doing some research for this topic, uh, I I did a quick literature review. And the literature suggests that when students become alienated and isolated, they lose their sense of belonging and their performance suffers. What what initiatives has, has your university put in place, first, to identify students at risk, and second, to build an inclusive experience to foster success?
3: Yeah, well, I think the key is actually early identification of the students at risk, and we have various stages in that. But the very first one is if they don't hand in the very first assessment task or they do it very poorly. So that triggers a phone call from our Succeeded Adelaide, which is a peer phone call um, before it gets too serious, but just to kind of a wellbeing check-in. And then we push the lots of one-to-one support that we have. The PASS program um, that JB and others have mentioned is fabulous. But we also encourage them to talk to course coordinators, to look at counselling, disability support, um, studiosity, we get them to use that, of course. Um, our writing centre is fantastic. For math students, we actually do a multi pronged approach where we say use the maths learning centre, use our uh, past classes in maths, go for the first year math support. There's a great um, first year support um, program in place in the, the maths department. Um, and I think we stressed that from day one. I mean, the Vice-Chancellor in his opening address for O-Week was also saying this is the most important thing you can do is ask for help. And we do just keep saying, please ask for help. It's the ones who don't come for help till too late where we have run into all those problems. Um, and then we've got the specialised help. So we have a lot of Indigenous students. We have a specialised Indigenous support unit. and We also have a dedicated international student support team. So we've already mentioned all the colleges and accommodation um, structures. So, so I think we actually do that pretty well. And you can see it's a combination of professional and skilled support staff, peer support, specialist um, academic support. Um, and certainly we ramped that up through COVID. It became really important to do that even more so online than face-to-face. Um, the second part you think, I think you mentioned was around building a sense of belonging and make it inclusive and feeling connected um, again it's it's really hard to do that well and I, I've i come to the <laughs> to the um, finding after a few years at a few different universities I think you have to approach it again with multiple options for students and the option is important students have to be able to choose what they decide to do to make them feel connected and belonging um, if you force a single path on them they won't do it so it's around student choice and agency and finding something that works for them and for some students it might be a judo club for others it's going weekly to the writing center for others it's a social activity at the end of the week with a group of friends Um, it's a not one size fits all approach so you have to present as many choices as you can possibly manage afford and run well i think So um, we do certainly work very closely to push things like the social clubs and the sporting clubs and the union clubs, and we do a lot of that activity face-to-face and online. Um, But I would also say we waste no opportunity. And One of the ones we did last year that was really successful was around academic integrity. So the student leaders asked us to educate students on academic integrity. It was a big issue last year and the year before with online exams. Um, so, we did online modules that we asked students to take, and the take up was well over 90%, which was fabulous. But what we also did was set a whole lot of really fun quizzes around academic integrity in the student hubs for the students who were on campus and provided donuts, free food. You know, food always works with students. Um, and actually, they were really, really popular. So, that actually was us providing a service the students had asked us to do um it was um doing it in a way that was fun but also saying actually you know this is really important you need to know this stuff so that's just an example but it's an example where you can tie the academic and the social aspects together and do it well but it came out of a student request that we do this
1: and, and I think also so if I can say there's, there's a student empowerment piece here too because we're likewise using journey analytics and we have automated responses so Depending on what, if students don't do certain things, it automatically triggers a response. Uh, But the empowerment side comes into encouraging students to use learning analytics themselves. So it's encouraging student take up of learning analytics. Uh, And that involves then having to work in partnership with students to find out how it can work best for them. Uh, And likewise, also, what's really important is, of course, we're gathering student data and using student data. So we have to put a wrapper around working in partnership with students to build stakeholders confidence and trust in the use of their data. So it's a really complex piece here, but it's quite exciting. Learning analytics is, is really critically important as we all become more data enabled. Uh, and, and as we also begin to automate more stuff and leverage AI, it's really important we work with students as partners uh, to put in place a framework that all of our stakeholders have trust and confidence in, because that's an issue we face in our everyday daily lives, of course. So it's a quite exciting space.
0: Look, there's a comment made in the chat that I'd just like to um talk to you about, and it's a student that, in uh, a colleague that invokes in Foucault, um, and talking about having students uh, reimagine themselves uh, in this new environment of empowerment. Mm-hmm. So what will this new student look like? Uh, how will they be more informed, more assertive, and more engaged, and have a deepened sense of um, belonging and more be more successful? Mitch,
4: can I throw that one at you? <laughs> yes, you <laughs> certainly can, Judith. So, thank you very much. In fact, that is a colleague from Macquarie University who has asked that question. So, thank you, Marys. Um, a, a tricky one. Look, uh, an academic community, an academic discipline, that is made up of you know um, constructive, um, creative tensions, and the way that a, an academic community advances is through you know, disciplined critical thinking. And I think if we introduce students into that. That community very early in their academic career, they will not only benefit in their in their own particular disciplines, but will be able to become the kind of lifelong learners that we, we will need going into the future. And this is really about empowering students and making them recognize that it's the it's as much the process of inquiry is important as the actual content that they will learn um, through their academic disciplines. But a philosopher would say that, Judith. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in, in what you were talking about earlier, um, particularly, Jenny, in terms of what was happening in Adelaide, but also what you were saying at Wollongong, Theo, is with returning to campus, and it's a constant challenge for people at universities, is having the sticky campus. So how, what, what can you do? to actually encourage this sticky campus. And by having a sticky campus, you'll get students to be connected. They'll feel belong. They'll get that sense of belonging. They'll be part of a learning community, but how can you get them on campus in the first place?
1: Um, Well, just for ourselves, I think we're like everyone else, we're throwing massive party. So So we've invested a lot more effort into a very attractive offer to students. But just coming back to what Mitch was saying previously, um, and I completely agree with what he said around, obviously the, what we offer students in terms of the the ability to expand their intellectual horizons. It seems to me the challenge is how, do, how, do, how can we work with students so they can empower us? They're the next generation. And oh my God, you know, this pace of technological and social change is so fast. Uh, and what I think is really exciting we've seen in the last few years is the empowerment of young people. You think about the climate change movement and so forth young people having voice, looking at things in different ways, communication in ways that our generation, not speaking for JB, because he's a different generation, but our generation are, are you know, we've still got our heads around this, but but the, my gosh, they're moving so fast. So I think there's a really interesting piece around how how students can empower us actually, and how, because the challenge for universities is how we transform. Like the sticky campus thing is really interesting, but you know what?
0: I want to I mean, define sticky campus because a number of people have asked I mean. what sticky campus is. That, that is like also
1: so last century that's not the way to think actually okay everything's going to be hybrid going forward so the challenge is how you build community in a hybrid environment so we still have to work at sticky campuses because our because our business models are currently built around them and and our, our everything is our logistics are it's a legacy that we all are, are tied to but in so many service sectors they have moved to hybrid and online and and so how do we how do we develop and nurture community in a hybrid context. And we don't have that. There's no easy answer here, but that's actually where we need to go.
3: If I can just add to that, I think, Theo, so yeah, you're right about the hybrid context, but depending on what university you're at, that uh, the, the, it's getting the balance right. So my previous university was was predominantly online. In that case, a sticky campus is less important but if I'm talking about my current campus we're in the middle of a vibrant city in the middle of a fringe festival (laughs) about to launch into a whole series of festivals in the festival state and we want students and we want our staff in fact I think we're going to have more trouble getting our staff back on campus than the students and I'm hoping the staff will learn from the students this week and see that we have thousands of students on our campus you know behaving safely having a great time um, and that the staff will want to come back for that social interaction that they have been missing. So, so I think there are ways to learn from this. But yes, we've actually been talking very actively mm. about how much we do want students and staff back on campus. Because, you know, you can think from a, we, we saved an awful lot of money with electricity bills by closing buildings, for instance. But, um, you know, that was at a cost to the social interaction and learning of a lot of our staff
0: and our students. And you know, I just that, that partnership between um, academics and students and, and investigate that a little bit more. Mm. Um, workload competing demands um, and sometimes priorities of academic staff uh, means that they are not accessible in the way that students want to be accessible. How can you encourage staff to see as part of their workload supporting students to belong, uh, to, to engage with students in ways that... Um, that actually expand both each other's horizons.
1: I mean, just speaking for my colleagues, <coughs> um, my I, I personally find that speaking for the UOW colleagues, uh, academics don't need any encouragement to to make time for students and support students. I mean, that's so evident that the culture is so strong in terms of valuing uh, support that part of the mission. The issue is around um, how do we help staff and students optimize the time they spend on these interactions? And there, to be honest, we need to leverage, we need to leverage uh, automation and big data. We need to, we need to simplify our processes. We need to strip out anything that is really time wasting so that people can spend time on what really matters, which are interactions. And that's, that's what we all want and that's what's really valuable. So I think for academics, I, sus- I strongly suspect uh, what's irritating are, the kind of minor bureaucratic things that really is time wasting and we need we need to do a better job of of improving our processes and our systems so that they don't have to do that for students by the way and this goes back to the sticky campus point mm. everyone wants to be on campus but they want to be they want a flexibility students are really busy they all have, most of them have jobs or care responsibilities they want to be able to come on campus do a do a whole pile of stuff on campus but be able to have t- time off doing other things mm. and, and that's what so it's all around improved processes leveraging data giving enabling choice for students and staff, and most of all, enabling people to focus on what matters, which is interaction, as well as the other things that academics are doing, not waste time on, on pointless admin and bureaucracy, which is, uh, which is just due to us having poor processes and poor systems.
0: So Mitch, can I throw a question at you? Not a, not a curly one. How do you measure the outcomes of an effective student experience?
4: Not a Kelly one, juice. Uh, uh, look, this is something that I think about constantly, and uh, I, I really do believe that we need to try and triangulate at least three data sources here, and this is probably generally across learning and teaching. So we need to think carefully about student preferences. We need to look carefully at student behaviour, and then we need to map that to performance. So obviously you start by asking what the students want, and beyond that, how satisfied they are with what we actually offer. But that's not enough. Um, students have very complicated lives now. The world's a very complicated place. And there's any number of factors that can um, get in the way of what students want and what they can actually use. So as institutions, it's, it's our responsibility to make sure that we adapt and respond to the actual behaviour of students. And all of that, of course, needs to be in the service of performance. And usually we're talking about student learning outcomes and beyond that, how positively what students um, learn impacts both them and their communities. So really interesting example from UTAS is lectures. And I always use this one cause it's provocative. So during the peak of the pandemic, um, what, two years ago now, we asked students what they missed most about being on campus. Very clear message, they missed the sense of community, they missed active learning, and they missed social learning. What they did not miss was didactic lectures. That was their second least um, missed activity. And this aligns with their actual behaviour. So, you know, a decade of research at least has demonstrated that attendance during lectures drops off to pretty terrible levels throughout the semester. But those small group activities, tutorials, practicals, they stay really strong throughout the semester. So there's no drop off. And, of course, The student behaviour here has been vindicated by the empirical literature. So at least a decade, probably more has been pointing away from didactic delivery to active social forms of learning. So that's just an example. Really, um, the, the central message here, start by listening to students, but map that onto how they actually behave, always thinking about what the ultimate goal is, which almost always is going to be student learning and the transformation that learning can have both on them as individuals and on the communities in which they live.
0: And that links in very much with the idea of data analytics that Theo was talking about, it. using using the information, the data that you have, but interrogating it in a way that has purposeful outcomes. All right. Um, any, any comments from uh, any other members of the panel regarding that question about um, how Just- do we they've
2: been successful i was definitely going to say nobody ever misses lectures but uh, <laughs> that's fine but if you do have split classroom though that suddenly yeah. becomes a lot more interesting because people are engaged it's just it's like magic. So absolutely. And something else I was going to say, and I think it's actually like a big thing for, you know, getting students on campus, getting students engaged, that kind of thing is harnessing the power of social media. Because if you look at us as, you know, as customers, like, what do we do when we go to a restaurant or where we want to go to a restaurant that we like or another experience, we go and follow it on social media, Hmm. because we want to be part of that community, uh, or celebrity or other things. But a lot of the social media done by universities is marketing-led. So I follow, you know, Western Sydney University, and it's all just like, it doesn't speak to me. So I don't really want to be on that social media. Of course, there are, there's other, you know, pages and things like that. But I think it needs to be peer-led, like student-led in a way, because we know, like, you want to give that FOMO experience, you know, like, oh, this is what's happening on campus now, or this is what's going to be happening. And if you don't have that way of communication, and going back on what something Jenny said, um, she said there's that program where somebody gets a call from someone. But a lot of students now, there's like, phone anxiety is a thing. A lot of people don't like picking up the phone, So you got to reach out to them in a way that's not maybe directed, but in a way that reaches out to them. And I think social media, via ideas is a, a good way of doing that.
0: Yeah, can I throw back a question to you that, about something that you brought up a bit earlier? And it's about participation in institutional governance. Um, and it, it is an element of student engagement and empowerment. From your experience, what are the best levels for students to have a voice? And uh, how do you recruit students who can make effective contributions? Yeah,
1: I mean, the uh, short answer is all levels. And I think one of the fellow panelists made the point earlier that and traditionally, we've we've had a few student reps on some of the really superior uh, governance bo- bodies of the university. But in fact, what you need is at all levels, uh, and that actually extends to when I was. Um, if, so I arrived f- from London about f- uh, four and a half years ago in Australia. And It's wonderful to be here. And uh, but previously I was at King's College London, and just as I was leaving, we were we were beginning to have students on our appointment panels, academic appointment panels. So that gives you an idea of where it can go. And and to be honest, they just brought it. The, they brought it it wasn't perfect and there's lots lots of ways we could have improved it but they brought a new perspective um the challenge of course is that it take it you're you're taking students away from their studies uh, they're not paid members of staff you're asking them effectively to provide free labor to one sense um so there, it's back in the balance right of course in because if you're talking about having student reps across at all levels uh, that's a lot of students actually uh, so it you know, you can use, you have all the usual mechanisms around EOI, training, mentoring, but before you know it, you're standing up hundreds of students to be reps. So I think it's, we need to think carefully about how we proceed with this. There are other things you can do, of course, which is have like, um, and this is something that our vice, our new vice chancellor has really championed uh, is, you know, have, have, she has a governance fellow, a student governance fellow on, on her staff supporting the development of policy, bringing a completely new perspective, very talented individual. We're looking at having student communications um, interns in our communications teams, coming to the point that JB was making around the optimum way—not just the kind of channels that you communicate with students, but what they want to what they want to hear, but also just getting their perspective. And I think, by the way, there's a larger piece here around value alignment. And again, you know, universities have always prided themselves, I think, of being progressive institutions, but actually, value alignment is more complex than that. And students, they, you know, students are complexity in, in terms of the community. They have. Com- it's a complex set of values there. How do we how do we give voice to those values? How do we align those values and the values of the institution? It's an ongoing piece of work. Again, interesting enough, in private sector and business, that's been happening for many years. You know, many companies now are not just selling products and services to their customers; they're selling values and value propositions. Mm-hmm. It's core to brand. Um, and ironically, uh, although we are progressive institutions, I mean, we've been in this game for ages, arguably. But actually, we have a lot to learn about how we can understand the values of our whole community, their language, customer base in our language, our student part of our community, and how we can align our mission with with the values of the next generation of people who are coming along.
0: Look, and this will be the last question, Um, and this is from uh, one of our Canadian um, participants and from Yorkville University. Can the panel discuss the role of self-assessment, peer review, collaborative group assignments in student engagement and student empowerment? Jenny. <laughs> I
3: was going to say, oh, that's a huge topic. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I, again, I, I actually think it, it's actually a really important way to, to empower students as part of the assessment process. Um, and I do have some colleagues who actually at the beginning of every semester have a discussion with the students and come up with a collaborative way to assess. Because I think allowing students to have a choice right at the beginning is really important if you're able to do that within your systems. And again, keeping in mind some courses with accreditation, there's no room to do that. But I think it's finding spaces, whether it's informal learning or informal learning for students to exercise their expertise. And the example that came to mind, which isn't Completely on topic, and I apologise for that uh, questioner. Is actually in our, um, there's an area that sits under me we all call LEI, but it's learning enhancement and innovation. I think that's the first time I've got it right. Um, But we actually have learning enhancement officers who are students, and these are students in paid roles who sit down online or face to face and give our academics at elbow support to help build their courses, revise their courses, develop the technology in their courses. So it's not about so much the assessment, but it's finding roles where the students are the experts. Um, And we saw that during COVID with our education, our teaching students who were far better at the technology than teachers out at schools. And that was one of those areas in which those students were absolutely invaluable. And they went from being the, the passive placement teacher to the expert in the classroom, teaching the more seasoned teachers about the learning technologies. So, again, slightly off topic, but I think they're the examples that came to mind about empowering students through that assessment process and taking that further, if you like, to the workplace.
4: So I might jump in with a really concrete one, if that's okay, Judith. Um, When I was teaching, which has been a couple of years now, I would always allow the students to develop their own assessment rubric. So we'll do that as a community. And that's just an amazing way of demonstrating the purpose of the assessment class, but empowering the students there. Um, The critical point here is I stole this idea off my partner, who's a primary school teacher. And if you want to see good engagement and good peer engagement, go to a primary school classroom.
0: And on that very positive note, can I thank all the people that have been participating in today's symposium um, for for their insightful comments and their their thoughtful responses to uh, the issue at hand. And in particular, I just have been absolutely enchanted with the uh, the comments, the discussion that's been happening in the chat session as well. So, look, thank you, everyone, for your time today. Uh, Three three points. I think uh, listening uh, from both parties is really important collaboration, but also an openness to try and test new ideas. And uh, I think that we had examples of that today. So thank you. And everybody have a safe day. And those of us that are living in Sydney, keep dry.